My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Orient Society and the host of the Snake Talk podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. are live. Welcome to the Snake Talk podcast. I am here with Dan Natouche. Uh, he is locked down in France at the moment. I'm wishing he was on an airplane heading to uh, other parts of the world, uh, but we'll talk about that uh, today. And, and Dan is here to write um, a, a real wrong on my part uh, relative to the Snake Talk podcast. And as most of you know, I am a venomous snake and in particular a viper uh, fanatic. Uh, it's one of the things that, that I love most in this world. And, and so you've, you've been consuming a lot of viper content. And I figured that it was time to get some, uh, some of the world's experts in other taxonomic groups on the podcast. And Dan is exactly that. Uh, I found Dan, you know, I've heard about his name through, uh, you know, some of the work I've done with IUCN and, and some of the partners there. Um, but most recently, uh, his name caught my attention again when uh, there was a news article about a python trying to eat a woman. And we will talk a little bit about that today. Um, and we will certainly talk about how pythons in particular have this amazing ability to eat things that are so large. So, Dan, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Chris. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, great. Well, I like to start out and just kind of have uh, have you tell the audience, you know, where are you? What what do you do today? What's your job? It's a good question. I don't think my parents still know the answer to that question. Um, so I'm a, a herpetologist like you uh, and a conservation biologist more broadly. Um, I'm stuck here in France because I do a lot of work in Europe for the CITES Secretariat, for the United Nations and, and various treaties that, that they have signed and also for IUCN. Um, I'm the chair of IUCN's Byron Python Specialist Group, um, to which I was appointed this year. And but most of my most of my research has of late, sorry, has been in Southeast Asia on the trade in snakes. So either the trade in snakes or, or reptiles more broadly for, for pets um, and also for skins. And the sort of research we do is to un better understand their, their biology, their ecology, um, but also to understand the impacts of harvesting on wild populations and whether that harvesting can be sustained. And obviously there are um, a lot of groups with an interest in that topic, some of which being the luxury groups that use skins of those species to make uh, fashion items, the CITES Secretariat and, and United Nations bodies that have a strong stake in um, 
in ensuring that the trade is sustainable and then rights and welfare groups who want to sure, ensure that the trade is, is conducted humanely. So a lot of my time is spent as a consultant um, through a company I run called Epic Biodiversity, ensuring that that trade is sustainable, humane, ethical, transparent, and provides benefits to local people that are that have been trading those species for, for hundreds of years. But I think my one of my biggest passions is still being out there in the field, catching snakes, looking for snakes, doing primary research, um, which is is what I've been lucky enough to do since I was about 17 years old. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, after I first reached out to you and I started researching this this ep- epic biodiversity, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later, um, that just, just made me all the more excited to talk to you because, um, as you may have heard, you know, on a previous episode, we interviewed a, a gentleman named Craig Hoover, and he's, uh, you know, was with the Fish and Wildlife Service for many years, and now he's the, uh, you know, the uh, VP basically of the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. But anyways, we did a whole podcast talking about international trade, and we did a little bit of focusing in on the skin trade. But anyways, we'll come back to that. I would like to touch on skin trade more when we talk about um, epic biodiversity. So uh, another thing I like to ask my guests, and this is, I'm especially interested to hear the answer from you, because as we were talking about before the podcast, you're actually from New Zealand originally. So I'm always so curious how, you know, how people get into snakes. There's so many stories of, you know, people being young children and, and just being fascinated by these, but they're also the kind of these really divergent and, and interesting, uh, you know, stories. So especially being from New Zealand, you know, what was it growing up? What was your first experiences? How did you originally get into snakes? Well, to put that in context for the, for the listeners who may not know, New Zealand is one of the few countries on earth that has no snakes. So it's, it's not necessarily intuitive that I would become a snake fanatic. Um, but my story is rather cliche. We still have geckos and skinks and various species in New Zealand. And so I spent my early years, sort of five to 10, catching and keeping small lizards. Um, but then actually a, a, a chance or an opportunity to visit North America, the United States and Canada, allowed me to, on Vancouver Island, happen across a very small den of garter snakes at about age 11. It was nothing like the Manitoba dens. It was just a small aggregation of maybe 50 animals. And as I'm sure many of you know, you can pick them up in your hands. They're not biting you. They're stunning snakes. Some of them are playing dead and, and, and just how fascinating they are. Um, for someone who has never really had that opportunity in their lives, has been playing with the legged, the legged cousins of the snakes and, and being able to understand them like that. And then from there, I think, using that experience to convince my parents to spend more time in Australia since about age 11, especially in northern Australia. Um, and I was hooked since that point, and I've been catching taipans and pythons and all sorts as a teenager growing up, primarily in Cape York Peninsula. I found my first green tree python when I was 14 years old. Um, 
in in the McElraith Ranges, which is a very, very remote part of northern Australia. And in addition to, I think the nice thing if you are an outdoors type person and you're looking for snakes and weird and wonderful places is that the animals do take you to absolutely wonderful places. And some of the things you get to see, the, the people you meet living in remote areas, the landscapes you get to see uh, are just stunning. And so it wasn't just the snakes, it was the entire package of being able to ford rivers filled with crocodiles in a truck and get stuck there and the adventure and being able to fly along beaches on a motorbike that just stretch for kilometers and kilometers and then finding a green python at the end of the day and having a crayfish that you've caught yourself on the edge of a coral reef in the tropical north. I mean, it doesn't get much sexier than that. And so I think that uh, this adventure and this this lifestyle of being a snake guy kind of captured me as it did many people. <laughs> what, what an amazing, uh, maybe you take it for granted, but growing up there, but what an amazing part of the world uh, you grew up in. And that's just a little aside and we don't, I don't want to go too much in depth, but growing up in New Zealand, did you, have you ever seen a tuatara? Is that something you've, you've come across in your life? And I, I've seen them in sanctuaries I've, as in I've <laughs> seen them wilded. Uh, reintroduced within sanctuaries. Currently, though, there's, I think, you'll have to forgive my ignorance, uh, there's one mainland site that has been, has a large fence around it that predators have been excluded from, but otherwise tuataras are only occurring on islands off the coast. So, again, islands that don't require the fence just have the water and from which the predators have been eradicated and I haven't haven't been lucky enough to visit them on any of those islands. No. Great. And for those listeners who have never heard of a tuatara, um, you know, one of the planet's strangest, most fascinating animals. So just uh, we're not going to get into that today, but go, but go check them out. Um, so, <clears throat> so you you grow up and you have this fascination with with everything wild, from you know geckos to crayfish and adventure and. Um, and then, uh, when was it, what was the, that kind of switch? When did it click when you were like, I'm going to do this for a living. I'm not going to go be an insurance salesman. I'm going to chase snakes and lizards and, and, uh, you know, drive trucks through crocodile infested rivers. So how did that, uh, how did that, or when did that all come about? So I, I always knew I wanted to be a, a snake something growing up but as you know there aren't too many avenues or when you go to the counselor at your school and you talk about careers snake something isn't in their flip chart that they uh that they bring out to help guide you at least very frequently in my experience and so i always knew i wanted to do something so I left New Zealand age 17 for good. I was at boarding school in, in New Zealand um, and went straight to university in Australia because Australia is where they have many of these reptiles. Um, really just doing the academia thing as an excuse to get the opportunity to play with these animals in these places that I, that I loved. Um, however... I guess I, I, I don't lack a mind either. And slowly the, the academic side of it, the evolutionary biology, the, 
the, the physiology of the animals and those those sorts of questions as I matured and got older became became an increasing interest for me and being able to tie in the adventure and the field work with the ability to answer some fundamental questions about natural selection or why is the snake that color and why does it change to a separate color, etc. Those questions that I think we all have, right? As natural historians, when we observe the species we enjoy so much, we spend a lot of time observing them. We begin to naturally ask questions and an inquiring mind begins to establish different ways or experiments or tests that one might be able to go about answering those questions or gathering the the data to answer those questions. Um, And so that became an increasing interest for me. Um, That being said, it was all very much focused on the snakes. For example, I started my master's degree on green pythons when I was 18 in the second year of my undergraduate studies. Which is not let me not, let me cut in for a minute and ask you. So, where in Australia? You said you went to the university in Australia, but what part of the huge continent and country? Forgive me. So, I went to the University of New South Wales. Um, uh-huh. I actually i was a i was a quite a I used to run internationally as well, like at track and field, and so I had a scholarship to this uh, to this university, which was the only reason I would have preferred to go to Sydney University and study under Professor Rick Shine um, that many of you may may know well um, but I got the scholarship for this other university Rick was just down the road um, at the age of 18 I got a bit jaded with learning about biology of the cell and some of these basic <laughs> concepts which we all have to go through in our undergraduate careers not because they're they're inherently boring. They're a lot of fun and you learn a lot, except my heart was still very much set on on being up in the bush catching snakes. And so I shopped around or I asked an enormous number of supervisors across Australia who might want to supervise me to do a project on green pythons, which I spent a bit of time as a child and in my holidays studying and, and knew at that stage probably relative to a lot of people around the world, quite a lot about. And so I devised a project. Most people turned me down. I think I still have the email from Rick saying, there, there, young son, but no. Um, somewhere in my emails. And eventually, I got plenty of those too, just so, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> Her name's equally as, as big as, as Rick. So. Exactly, exactly. It's all, all par for the course, I think. And um. And eventually a paleontologist who was Dean of Science at the university then, his name is, is Professor Michael Archer, who's a, originally from the United States and a, a wonderful uh, scientist and human being, gave me that opportunity, which, which mainly he gave me his electronic signature, which allowed me to apply for permits and animal ethics approvals and grants, which I eventually got using his... Uh, his uh, signature as as backup, and we we went from there. and And I started each each field season, wet season, studying green pythons in my university holidays while continuing my my undergrad degree. And that that study, after three years, eventually became my my master's degree. 
Excellent. So you're so you're doing a master's at the same time. Basically, you're completing your undergrad at the same uh, university. But I'm assuming your field research was not in the vicinity because you're you're saying that you were going to school down in the close to Sydney. But I'm assuming your field research was quite a ways north. Is that accurate? Exactly. So each holidays, I would jump on an aircraft from Sydney. The university was was almost smack bang in the middle of, of Sydney, just outside the CBD in the eastern suburbs. So, yeah, no no green pythons lurking in, in them there suburbs. So I would jump <laughs> on a plane and fly to Cairns, and then I, with grant money, had, had bought and decked out a great Toyota Land Cruiser, and I'd put snorkels on and all sorts of things, and then in the wet season would make my way um, into the bush and camp for four months over a wet season in the scrub, just doing surveys for, for snakes and some of the adventures. Um, yeah, I'm sure you can, <laughs> you can imagine what they were like. Yeah. So you, so you, you do your master's work on the green tree pythons and we're going to talk about them uh, in a little depth in a while. So, so we won't go into them now. And, but, um, and then, did you go on and do a PhD after that, or did you go uh, directly to, to working with Epic Biodiversity? No. So I finished my master's degree, and we will speak about green python, so I won't go into detail. But one important point to mention now is that the babies or the juveniles, the neonates, are born either yellow or red, and then they change color to this brilliant lime green coloration um in australia at that point and, and still and we know why now we only had the yellow morph the yellow juvenile morph so i wanted to find the red juvenile morph because i had at that stage this established interest academic interest in um the evolutionary biology and the, the causes for that color change and the reasons why these juveniles were the colors that they are. And so I, together with my, my wife, um, now wife, then girlfriend, convinced her to do a master's degree. Oh, no, no, I'm, I've got it wrong. Forgive me. I took a trip to New Guinea and to the Indonesia, to Irian Jaya and came in addition to finding the red juvenile morph, which I'd been looking for, came across a thriving trade in wildlife that a few people knew about from the herpetocultural um, uh, side of things, but academics and scientists didn't know very much about. And as I'm sure you know, you know, you, you can spend an enormous amount of time looking for a snake in the bush and find one individual and so it takes you a long time to build up a sample size to say anything meaningful from an ecological perspective. Um, however, here we were able to turn up and find 50, 100 green pythons with the help of local villagers um, in one hit. And so I thought, gold mine, here's a chance to get a, a really great sample size to answer some of the evolutionary and ecological questions that, that were my interest at the time. And so I came came back to Australia and convinced then girlfriend to sorry then girlfriend yes now wife to um, 
embark on a master's degree looking at the wildlife trade. And I would tag along for the ride and be able to collect data from the animals and answer some of those questions that I had a burning desire to have answered. And, and the rest is somewhat history. Um, we published a lot of papers um, coming out of that, some related to trade, others related to um, pure ecology on a, on a number of different species, and then started working as consultants for a number of a number of years. Um, that's when Epic Biodiversity started. This is around 2011, so nine years ago, um, and we did that for a number of years. We, I got we both got a bit tired of living out of suitcases, get going from field site to field site, being consultants or sitting in offices with government staff talking about wildlife trade and regulation and and so on, and wanted to get back to the pure science. And so, and I think at that stage, Professor Rick Shine sent me an email saying, "Hey, what are you doing?" Um, and he said, would you like to do a project on cane toads with me? And I thought, God, no. At <laughs> that time, he had funding to do a lot of cane toad work. And I said, how about we team up, but I go back to Cape York and do research, do a PhD on, on snakes up there. Because I, I discovered a site at which you could find a large number of species in, in relatively or very high densities. Not like the water pythons at Fog Dam, which is another one of, of Rick's long-term field sites, but a greater diversity of species across a number of different landscapes and habitats, so you can answer a broader range of questions for a larger group of taxa. And, um, and essentially, the project was going to be on fire. It never that never eventuated. What it turned into. I actually, my thesis is on birds. So I'm an ornithologist, if you look at my thesis. Um, one of the things I discovered as a kid, it's been known to Aboriginal people for a long time, are each wet season, a small passerine bird called a metallic starling migrates down from New Guinea and it breeds in large rookeries or colonies in tall emergent rainforest trees in northern Australia. And you can find them in Cairns. They're not, they're not just restricted to remote areas where, where I was. And um, I'd come across these as a, as a younger man. And at the bottom at night, there are tons of snakes loitering around because when you go underneath, there's a large dead zone where guano and seeds have been dropped by the the thousands of birds in the colony above, and it's attracting uh, all sorts of insects, which are attracting frogs and toads and mice and rats and echidnas and all sorts. And then you get the 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 birds like the scrub turkeys and the scrub fowl and the palm cockatoos and the sulphur crested cockatoos and the the wampu fruit doves and all these animals that come in to eat the seeds. And then you get the animals that come in to eat and prey on those animals and you get the snakes that come to prey on the the rodents below the trees but more importantly the the chicks the starling chicks that are unable to fledge or get pushed out of the nest by a, an angry older brother or whatever it may be they fall to the ground and so you get i think about six six to ten species in total but 
three species predominantly, the Australian scrub python, which is the, the Australia's largest snake, one of the world's longest snakes, um, a slaty grey snake, a small uh, colubrid, and um, the brown tree snake, Boiga regularis, which is now invasive on Guam, has eaten a lot of birds there, is still chomping a lot of birds too in its native range in Australia. And I got the opportunity to explain that to Rick, who said, God, I'm, I'm meant to know everything about Australian snakes and I've never heard about the system. That sounds incredible. I think I took it for granted at the time because it makes perfect sense. Tree, birds, fall, snakes eat. What, what is there to know? But obviously there's a lot more to know and we answered a, a lot of very interesting questions about that system and me being the the foolish joker that I am decided to put all those papers into my thesis and have a, an ornithology PhD rather than a snake PhD, which is my passion. But in the interim, I got to radio track scrub pythons and black-headed pythons and capture thousands of snakes over over the course of my PhD and compare the snakes that were frequenting the trees to the snakes that were um, in the broader environment and to see how they differed and answer just a, a number of basic, you know, b boring for a lot of people, but just fascinating for folks like you and I, a lot of questions on about 12 different species of, of snake in the area. And that was my, my PhD. What a, what a fascinating system. I love kind of these kind of micro features that are created by other animals. Like here in the U S you might take like a beaver or something that get, where an animal creates this, this whole new system and, and to have snakes uh, come in as one of the predators in that must've been a, a fascinating thing to study. And I'm sure you're aware um, they've been documenting similar uh, types uh, of systems here in the U S with cottonmouths in, in some of the uh, bird rookeries. So uh, but but yeah, that's that's very interesting. So I want to transition here and, and talk a little bit about pythons. But I want to do that by first kind of you know we've talked a little bit about your career path. How did your career path end up kind of getting focused on this group uh, of animals? Is it was it kind of like opportunity or was it that 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 was your true interest? I'm you know you're most interested in pythons of all the animals on the planet. How, how did that kind of transition occur? Yeah, it's a, it's actually a very good question and one that I've not thought about. As in, what came first? It, it for me, I think it's a bit of a chicken and an egg. In Northern Australia, pythons are actually one of the more common or whether they're occurring at higher densities or whether they're just far more detectable as difficult to know, it's probably a bit of both. Um, they're a lot more common than the elapids and certainly more common than the majority of colubrids in, in many habitats. And so you are happening across them with higher frequency. And so that may have played into why I have a fascination with with pythons. The reality is I have a fascination with all snakes. I think probably the charisma of a large, beautifully patterned python that may weigh 30 kilograms, you know, is is more of a drawer than is a small 60 centimeter long colubrid. 
Um, so that may play into it. However, when it comes to green pythons, which were, I think there was probably a bit of, I wouldn't say ego, but showmanship and the fact that I was in these areas where few other people get to go. And I probably at that time, it's I've grown out of it, but well, at least I think I have um, <laughs> grown out of the, <laughs> this, uh, this part of it was the fact that I was in these areas finding these snakes. And I think also had an ability to find them just because of the length of time spent around them in the area that many others didn't. And I think that gave me a bit of a thrill, but not making it all about myself because it's certainly not the snakes themselves. The green pythons are, I mean, to find in a tropical rainforest when you're dripping with sweat and to find that little emerald jewel curled up the way, you know, you've, you've seen them curled in many a, a terrarium, I'm sure, or, or in photographs. It's a, it's a remarkable experience. And the, and the, the beauty of the juveniles and to watch the color change and find intermediate um, life stage or that, that life stage when they are changing there and to know that because of the work of David Wilson, um, that they change habitat when they do change color. It's there. It's a special animal. And I think, I don't know if it was the same for you with vipers, but when you do a lot of research on one animal group, you're perceived as the viper guy or the python guy. And so it was probably more an artifact of the, the, the fact that I had worked on pythons first. And then, you know, you kind of, you kind of get labeled by others more than you end up label, labeling yourself. The reality is I love all animals, all reptiles, all snakes. And maybe I have a half a percentage point more love for the pythons than than other snakes but it's a, yeah it's a it's a, a broad interest and then as scientists again you end up studying the animals for which you can gain sufficient sample sizes to answer the questions you wish to answer which goes back to my earlier point that that these animals in certain habitats the pythons i mean seem to be at least more detectable if not more abundant yeah, you hit the nail on the head, you know, talking about yourself and pythons and, and relating that to me and vipers. There's there's so much there, uh, you know, all the way down to the thrill and the ego and then how, how you even build a name within working with a certain taxonomic group of animals completely uh, spot on from for my history uh, as well. So let's let's go back and, and talk, you know. Python 101 for some listeners that may not know exactly what a Python is. And we'll spend a lot of time, but um, let's just start there. Can you tell us what is a Python? Um, maybe in that description, maybe kind of distinguish it from its closest relatives, the boas. Um, and then just maybe some superlatives, like like what's you know, you already mentioned some things about size and things of that nature. So what is a python? <laughs> well, uh, here I'm going to have to scrub up on all those all those old textbooks. But to my understanding, pythons are in a, a very basal, a very early lineage of, of, of snakes. Um, they're old world species, being they're not found in in the new world of which the boas are. Um, they differ from boas 
a number of morphological features in the skull and so on, but for for the, the most obvious being that they are egg layers um, rather than being viviparous, uh, um, what's like giving birth to live live young as the boas do. Um, I, I don't know exactly their their evolutionary history and when they diverge from a common ancestor relative to boas and and, and so on. Um, but they are the reticulated python and the anaconda, the reticulated python being the python and the anaconda being the boa. Worldwide, these two groups, these these old lineages, are the largest species of snake on Earth. And many of the fossils, Titanoboa and many of the Malaya python, Riversleensis and and other species, the Monty python thing discovered from Australia in the fossil record, show that even historically these were the largest snakes. And the reason why um, why they are, in addition to the molecular evidence, suggested to be um, some of the closest relatives to lizards is because they have these vestiges of hind limbs. So these uh, a rare a pelvic pelvic bones in the in the rear of the snake and the spurs that you see either side of the cloaca on on pythons now are the remnants of those or the vestiges of those limbs. Um, and so, yeah, big, bright, colourful, not always, because you have things like the pygmy python, which is all of 60 centimetres. It's not a large animal, um, just like you have some quite diminutive small small boas that are not the size of a green anaconda. Um, but by and large, on average, absolutely um, the, the more conspicuous and heavy-bodied um, group of snakes, all of which are constrictors. And so they have that, um, and that's true for the boas too. They all have this, uh, this, this method of subduing and killing their prey. And that's not unique to them. As you know, a lot of colubrids do the, do the same thing. Um, however, I think the, the fact that reticulated pythons do kill and eat people, um, they very large prey, as we'll, we'll speak about soon, I'm sure. Um, they're a lot more visible in the eye of the public than is your small little water snake or, or diminutive colubrid of some other type. And how, uh, if we if we focus in on Australia, where you've spent so much time, how do pythons in particular? You know, you've talked about the green tree python, but. Um, Tell us a little bit about pythons in Australia. Again, at kind of this 30,000-foot level, what species would you find? Where might you find them? Those types of things. Sorry, you broke up for one second there. Can you just repeat that again? Sorry, Chris. Oh, apologies. So if we focus in on Australia, um, tell us a little bit about pythons and how they're distributed uh, within, uh, you know, the country. Uh, you know, what species might you find, those types of things. Cool. So pythons radiated perhaps, well, there's a number of different um, hypotheses about from where pythons radiated, but most pythons are found in Australia or the Australopapuan region, so New Guinea, 
that's Papua New Guinea and and Irian Jaya or West Papua Indonesia and Australia. And it's certainly the tropics, northern Australia, where most pythons are found. And there are two places in the country where you can find up to um, six different species of python. It might, be, it might be three places if you include the rough-scaled python. Um, three places where you can find six different species excuse me, of python in, in one spot. Um, and they are all either in Cape York with the, the green python or in um, the Northern Territory with the Owen Pelly python or Western Australia with the, the rough-scaled python. Um, and then the distribution is, is largely focused on the East Coast where we have the carpet python, which also occurs in the tropical north, comes down um, the east coast as far as Victoria. So that's the, the state that has Melbourne in the, in the very south, just over the, the border from New South Wales. You can continue to find diamond pythons despite it being very cold. And Rick Shine and colleagues have done a bit of work on the, uh, in the 80s and 90s on diamond pythons in and around Sydney. And, um, but essentially, and then we, we also have carpet pythons occurring throughout some of the arid areas of New South Wales, a centralian carpet python occurring, or the brittles carpet python um, occurring around Ayers Rock and the McDonald Ranges in the centre of the country, and then also carpet python taxa Morelia imbricata occurring down the, the southwestern side of the coast. But that is essentially the carpet python depending on which taxonomy you follow, either subspecies, one species, or multiple species occurring across a wide distribution, but then all the other species like olive pythons, water pythons, spotted pythons, children's pythons, green pythons, scrub pythons, and so on, very much have that northern or, or tropical distribution. And you mentioned uh, earlier uh that the scrub python was the largest species in Australia. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. If, if, if again, based on records from back in the day, um, which, which I don't think have been confirmed, but at eight and a half meters would be up there in, in the top five, probably sitting around four, three or four, um, as, as the world's third longest snake. But they are very long and thin. They're nothing like an anaconda, um, nothing like a reticulated python. They're a, a long, thin snake. And there are ve absolutely verified records of snout event and tail length, so total length um, over the six-meter mark. Um, however, at eight and a half meters, which is the record, yeah, I... Put it this way, I, I did a study where we caught 600 and something individuals and the largest I found was just over four metres. And so, you know, when, you, when you're talking about doubling that and, and so on, it, it can be tricky. But then again, we've, we've measured tens of thousands of reticulated pythons and, um, and you do get the odd individual that is, is, is a whopping 100 kilos plus seven meters could kill and eat any of us that you pull out of the book. Yeah. So undoubtedly those monsters do occur, but, but certainly eight, eight meters is a stretch. It's fascinating that they're so thin. Are they more 
arboreal? Do they feed on a different diet? Are they more bird feeders? Say what? What? Uh, any speculation or any knowledge about that morphology relative to their ecology? Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a quick break and tell you guys that reptiles are declining around the world. As an example, turtles are the most threatened group of animals on the planet, with over 60% of all species classified as endangered. The Orient Society works every day to ensure that there's a future for these amazing animals. If you care about reptiles, amphibians, and their habitats, become a member of the Orient Society today by visiting www.orient.org. Yeah, I, so I've done a lot of radio tracking on scrub pythons and certainly the things you'd expect when they're smaller um they spend a lot more time in trees they are eating a few more birds um and the females which are less heavy bodied than the males spend more time in the trees um as they get bigger they get bulkier and they spend less time in the trees again there's conflicting conflicting things they do also switch to being predominantly large mammal predators so wallabies um and things like bandicoots um so it may be that when they get get that size it's not that they don't like spending time in trees it's just that all their prey is hopping around on the ground so it can be difficult to disentangle the two um however we certainly see um a lot of that and relative to the more heavy-bodied pythons, yes, they're spending a lot more time up in the trees. Great. So I want to focus in a little bit on these green tree pythons. And you mentioned earlier that within Australia, you only find the yellow morph juvenile snakes. And so I think this is probably a good a good discussion point. So first of all, where do you find green tree pythons kind of like on a global scale? What's their distribution? And then, uh, you know, also tell us a little bit about that phenomenon of the, the color morphs and what you've learned um, over time. Okay, cool. Well, favorite topic. Thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> green, green pythons occur in across, all across New Guinea. So the island of New Guinea, um, not the Bismarck Archipelago, so not New Britain or New Ireland, but if you picture New Guinea broadly from the bird's head all the way down to um, the far eastern end in Papua New Guinea, so straddling those two nations of Indonesia and, and Papua New Guinea. They also have a very small distribution in a number of remnant rainforest blocks in Cape York Peninsula, northern Australia. So if you think of New Guinea here and you see the, the spiky bit of Australia, there's only 150 metres, uh, so 150 kilometres of distance between the two mainland sites. It's dotted with islands and a reduction of sea level of five metres will connect the two land masses. And to put that into some meaningful perspective, 17,000 years ago, ago, world sea levels were about 180 metres below current day. So five metres is nothing. And to put that in perspective, Australian Aboriginals are thought to have been in Australia at least 
40 to 60,000 years. And so if 17,000 years ago, sea levels were 180 metres lower, they could have been walking from Cairns or Darwin to do their shopping in, in New Guinea. And so obviously the animals as well have the ability to, to go back and forth um, across, across that large land bridge. But we are in a period of, of, of drying currently. And so when those, uh, throughout those drying periods, so those periods of glaciation, um, the rainforest contracted northern Australia into deep gorges and mountain ranges, not by US standards, tall mountains. I'm, I'm talking sort of 800 meters max. So not, not a lot, but those sort of micro environments allowed the rainforest to persist. And that is where in Australia, the green pythons have persisted. Now I'm not talking the wet tropics. So not the areas around Cairns or the Atherton tablelands where you do get a number of endemic species, but, and there's a big dry belt, I'm getting technical, but across Princess Charlotte Bay, which if you look on the map is an area between Cairns, Cooktown and the wet tropics and these small rainforest blocks closer to New Guinea um, where you find green pythons. And we didn't know it at the time, but as I said, green pythons in Australia, the juveniles that had been found were all yellow. There were some reports of red juveniles, but I think they were just fanciful folks wanting to say that they'd found the first red juvenile in the country. Our work in, in New Guinea showed that, in fact, red juveniles were not found anywhere south of New Guinea's central mountain range. So that mountain range at its highest point has glaciers and has snow cap, despite being almost on the equator. Obviously, a barrier to a lowland tropical snake, and so you get that divergence. And since then, we've we've done a lot of molecular work and detailed morphological work to show that yes, there are indeed two separate species occurring north and south of that range, and it's in fact only in the northern species that you have the red juvenile morph. So the entire southern species, which is Morelia viridis, so retained the name that we're all familiar with including a number of island populations and the Australian mainland population, they only have that yellow juvenile morph. Any uh, speculation as to, uh, you know, what, what the adaptation of a red morph versus, you know, yellow morph might be? I've had a number of papers rejected where I've... Uh, where I've, tried to, <laughs> where I've tried to espouse those speculations. Um, well, it's a it's, podcast. Espousing. <laughs> You're not going to reject me in, in peer review, are you? Great. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a number of different selection mechanisms. I mean, mutation is first how, how, a, how a novel morph will, will come about. Natural selection we assume is how it is maintained. It's more about how are the different morphs maintained rather than how they come about. Um, things like disruptive selection, um, neutral selection, uh, different habitats that are selected. So I've done experiments with ex you know enclosures in the rainforest where I put the two different morphs in and I see where they um, hang out. We've looked at 
thermal preference of the different color morphs and and they all have plausible answers um i guess i'm not i'm i'm not sold on any one particular thing um certainly if predators are more prone and have a search image that is looking for a yellow morph even if a red morph is occurring at a a lower frequency because the search image is not clued into that novel morph then those alleles that code for that morph can proliferate within the population because they're not being selected in the same way the yellow <laughs> ones are. And so there are a number of different um, hypotheses that one, Darwinian hypotheses that one could apply um, that may explain it. And I've looked into a number of them and speculated, but ultimately we don't have enough hard data on on what may be maintaining those those two morphs, or it could be neutral, it could just be chance, who knows. And as I'm sure you're probably aware, in the Viper world, we have a number of, of similar situations, say like, you know, Vipera baris in, in Europe, uh, you know, where you're sitting today, or over here, Crotalus horridus in the mountains, we have a black morph and a yellow morph. And um, there's been some interesting work, um, you know, again, similar. I don't think they're very, very clear answers, but um, but it is is an interesting phenomenon. So. You've talked about pythons obviously being just really, you know, the world's largest snakes um, and pythons as well as some of the other uh, groups of snakes, vipers included, um, are or have the ability to eat really large things relative to themselves. And, you know, there's this recent story that, that we talked about uh, in the beginning about this woman uh, that a python attempted to eat. And maybe uh, I want to talk about, you know, maybe kind of from an evolutionary perspective, I want to talk about why snakes eat large things and those types of things. But maybe we could start with that story that's been in the news. Would you mind kind of giving us just a high level overview of, of what happened in that situation? Yeah, absolutely. So I was, as I mentioned, I did my PhD on a variety of things, birds, but also I tracked about 27 or 28 individual scrub pythons for a number of years. One of the individuals I was tracking, um, only about four kilograms, so not a big animal, but still almost four meters long. So that gives you some perspective, a four meter animal. If you had a, a four meter Burmese python, it would be could be 50 kilograms so here you're talking four kilograms for the same length of snake so very long and thin and obviously that has restrictions on the size of the prey that it can um that it can can handle and ingest um and so i've radio tracking the snake and I, we have friends in northern australia and this is this is occurring at the very tip so we are 15 25 kilometers from the tip of the australian mainland it's in an indigenous area of land, it's an indigenous reserve, if you will, and we have permission to do the work there. They live a semi-rural lifestyle um, in, an, in modified shipping containers, like some, some folks do. And there's two shipping containers like this, a roof over the top and a floor connecting the two. I radio tracked the snake and it turned out that it was under the uh, floor between the two shipping containers, the floor of their home. The snake isn't a danger, 
I think, at the time. Scrub pythons <laughs> have been known to bite people and try to, to wrap them up further south in Cairns and other places. Just as a precaution, I said to Leanne, who was there at the time, as it was a good friend, shut the kids' doors, shut their windows. It's, you know, just a, as a precaution, you'd, you'd hate to you'd hate to come in in the night and have your kid, I mean, have the life squeezed out of them by a large snake. And so she did that. She took that advice. But it's warm in the tropics, as, as I'm sure you know. And she left her own door open. And that evening, after the advice was given, I got a call from Leanne saying that the snake had crawled into her bedroom and it had actually grabbed her on the lower buttock and began coiling around her to wrap her up. She, being a fully grown adult and the snake being only four kilograms, was able to overpower it. She's she had worked with me and you know, snakes are part of life in that part of the world. And so she was more than capable of subduing it and trapping it in the kitchen until I arrived. Kids were completely oblivious, which is great. Um, I released the animal 100 meters away, thinking it was a freak accident, you know, and I don't want, you, I don't want my study being disrupted. <laughs> I'm not going to, you know, they, they wanted me to take it further or kill it or do whatever. And I said, no, it's fine. Don't worry. The snake's not going to come back. Well, it did come back and it, it overpowered a 25 kilogram hunting dog, um, four kilogram snake, remember, and which they managed to resuscitate. It also managed to uh, asphyxiate a puppy they had when it came back a third time. And by the third time, they were slightly less enamored with the snake and said, can you take it further? And so I, I took it further away, maybe only seven kilometers. And, um, and eventually it died because each time I would take it away, it would come back. And that's, I know a little bit about their, their homing capabilities because I've been radio tracking them and they somewhat randomly use an area. But when you take them away, bang, a bit like the Burmese python workers showing in, in Florida, they just go, they beeline straight back for their home range and they don't care about eating. They move at a rate that's far faster. I'm sure other snakes do the same thing. And, um, and by the time it would get back, it would be famished. It would go in and try and eat another dog. They would get pissed off and I would have to take the snake away. Eventually, it became emaciated and, 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 and died. Um, and, yeah, that was the story of, of that snake. And throughout the, the study, it was remarkable how many of the radio-tracked animals I found would be killed by their prey, not because the prey fought back, but simply because somehow the prey animal was too large. So Leanne was 16, 1,600% larger than the snake. I had snakes that would eat dogs that were 500% larger than their body size. Multiple wild, completely wild animals that would eat wallabies and paddy melons that were 150, 125% of their body weight. Many times absolutely successfully and other times would either result in regurgitation um, after a day or two. Um, sometimes that regurgitation process would kill the animal, and other times I'd find the animal just dead with the um, with the prey in its gut. And no 
no obvious signs of of uh, you know ruptured gut or or anything. I've, I've seen animals put a wallaby claw straight through their gut and just reabsorb it, and and they're absolutely fine. Um, there were no signs of obvious physical trauma upon upon necropsy. And so I'm not sure what the mechanism was that was killing them, but it was it was fascinating just to see that these animals would clearly take a, a risk. And when we did a bit of a scan of the literature, you know, you have you have the work from Guam where the brown tree snakes are latching on to children often. There's lots of stories in, in India of, of crates, common crates, crawling into people's beds at night and biting them, Mozambique spitting cobras doing the same thing. And so, yeah, we, we wrote a dinky little paper where we used that, uh, that single predation attempt from the snake we were radio tracking on the predation attempt from the woman to sort of explore this uh, in a little bit more detail. Yeah, so with the, the snake you were studying, um, obviously I'm assuming the puppy – would have been an easy meal for it to consume. Um, would that size snake, you said four meters, was that right? Hmm. Um, would it have been able to consume the hunting dog, the adult dog, despite the size difference? That that would have been a, a touch and go. Yeah. I mean, they, they can eat. A snake the size of my arm can, you know, it's, it's phenomenal, some of the photographs. I think I have a couple in the paper. They just, they, they can balloon out. I mean, f physically, physically, I, I don't see why not, given that a dog is quite a streamlined animal, whereas wallabies are quite thick in the, in the base. And, um, and so I don't think the dog would have been a problem from a, a, a shape point of view. Yeah. So maybe more speculation here, but have you have you get more into this paper that you talked about? So you've got this python, you know, uh, biting this woman on the buttocks, as you mentioned, or you have the concept of things like crates or cobras going into people's homes and biting them. And in all those events, very obviously, uh, you know, the snake is not going to be able to consume that person so what are your thoughts on the whole phenomenon um this is probably getting uh you know more, in, more into the realm of speculation but if anybody's going to speculate you're uh, probably the most qualified so i'd love to hear your thoughts on those types of events yeah well i mean it's a fairly unscientific answer there, there are several possible reasons in my mind and i think each each case will be exactly that, a case-by-case case reason for why it's happening. Ultimately, I think it is probably a case of mistaken identity for many animals. They, they are genuinely biting with a, with a, a you-are-a-prey animal in mind, and they're just not judging the size of the animal. Perhaps the sweat in the bed sheets, etc., smells like the sweat of a mammal that they would be eating naturally anyway and they just they can't judge necessarily i'm unlike crotalids i'm not convinced that the heat receptors in a python's face or in its lips are, are very sensitive they can certainly i believe directionally let you know 
where the heat is coming from. But all that National Geographic Discovery Channel stuff where you see the rattlesnake and then, then there's the, the thermal image of the mouse there, perhaps that's what a crotalid can see. I don't believe that's what a python can see. I could be wrong. And that is speculation. But I don't think their eyesight in the dark is phenomenal either. I've had some radio track snakes have a go at me when I've walked past them. You know, you know how you just can't always pinpoint them and you end up walking past them before you go back to them. And the snakes had a go at me thinking I'm a prey item. Um, obviously, I can't be eaten by any of these, these animals, but I think that given my experience radio tracking and seeing how infrequently they eat, I think many animals in the wild are living on the edge. They're living on the edge of life and death for a lot of the time. And these, because of, you know, they're ambush predators, they're not eat, eating particularly frequently. When something walks past and it could be a good meal, they're going to have a go. There's video footage of green pythons, which are, are mammal eaters striking at, at moths as they fly past. Now, a moth is probably not a very good, um, you know, new, highly nutritious meal for a relatively large green python, but they're having a go. And I think many of these pythons are uh, coming across the prey and just going, oh, well, I'm pretty hungry, so I'm going to have a go and, and I'm going to, and they're, they're somehow calculating that risk and saying the risk of me getting this wrong is actually lower than the risk of me not eating today and and dying because life's life's a bitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. So, huh. <clears throat> well, to finish up this concept that pythons in particular and a number of snakes eat relatively large things. Well, I'd tell the audience, you, you know, you should go on and, and search for some of these images of pythons and, and the things that they eat uh, around the world. You know, you already mentioned things like wallabies and, you know, you'll be able to find uh, pictures of say pythons in Africa eating things like, you know, different types of gazelles and antelopes. They, they can eat really large uh, prey, or you can get pictures from Florida of them eating <laughs> crocodilians or deer. So um, I would encourage you to look at that. But last thing on that topic, and then um, and then we'll begin wrapping up. But what's the mechanism? You've got a snake that has a relatively small head, and um, you know, again, I, I know this fairly well for vipers. Vipers do very similar thing. But what's the mechanism? How does a snake physically open its mouth large enough to swallow a wallaby or a gazelle? Well, I guess the. I mean, uh, it's fairly similar for most most snakes. I think it's the ability, the fact that the all four jaws, well, the the top part of the skull and the bottom bottom jaws uh, can absolutely dislocate, and as can the two bottom jaws in a python, and they have very loose skin on the in and around the head, and so they are able to essentially a bit like. I think if, if you've seen the Predator movie when he, when he does that and the two different parts come out and th they can open their mouths very, very wide and their skin slowly stretches. They have, they release a number of hormones when they, um, when it, when they, when a feeding response ensues and that loosens the skin around the mouth. It allows the skin of the, of the entire 
top half of the the body to become a lot more elastic, and that can and that can essentially allow the snake to to stretch its skin up and around a a very large animal. And in the yeah, way they, I'm sure, sure you've all seen it, the way they can walk independently, the right half of the bottom jaw, and then the left half, and then the the right half of the top jaw and then the left half and they slowly with those recurved teeth they pull the animal inside that's inside its stomach i mean in terms of relative prey mass a lot of the work on Nerodia by i'm going to forget his name armstrong um a lot of a lot of work done in the states and i think by harvey lillywhite and others um have shown that yeah colubrids can also eat up to 125% of their of their body mass like pythons there is a, a number of snakes where the studies have shown you know that optimal foraging theory where they will stop taking the smaller animals simply because it makes sense to take a much larger animal and i think that's true for pythons you don't see large pythons wasting their time with small birds anymore or, or rats they are when they reach a certain size, they become wallaby eaters. They're only eating wallabies. They're only interested in wallabies, and they'll eat two of them a year, and that's all. All they'll eat, and that's enough. And clearly, that 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 massive intake of 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 or caloric intake is enough to sustain them, and is and is better for them than taking a lot uh, a large number of small meals. And so, yeah. yeah. It's it's fascinating stuff. I, I don't know. I must admit, I don't know exactly um, the reasons for for why they're doing it. And it, again, is probably a case specific for each taxon. Yeah, and uh, vipers in general are are very similar um, in terms of how they are able to to you know ingest such large prey. Um, I always thought it was a, kind of an interesting. You know, people here in North America generally are are very afraid of vipers um speaking in generalities and um but you know so they think of them as this you know tough scary animal but you know rattlesnake on average you know has a much more fragile head you know just smaller bones more cartilage uh as compared to say a lot of colubrids certainly like your snake eating colubrids things like indigo snakes and king snakes um so I'm going to kind of begin wrapping up, but before we do, I want to uh, just take a, a second and talk a little bit more about um, this epic biodiversity. Uh, so you've mentioned it, it; you primarily work around the skin trade, and you're, um, you know, working with a lot of these large international, um, uh, you know, kind of governing bodies, conservation bodies, whether it be IUCN, United Nations, things like that. So, is that true? It is. Epic biodiversity primarily focused on the skin trade, or, or I guess I should say wildlife trade, or is it broader than that? No, so it, it's much broader. Um, in terms okay. of, in, let's say, do it from an income point of view. Most of my income, or majority of my income, is is as a conservation biologist more more broadly. Um, so doing work. We do a lot of policy work on wildlife trade. So I'd say we we do have a strong focus on wildlife trade that it has nothing to do with reptiles often. I work on lions and rhino horn issues and a bunch of things. We write 
For example, if we, we do a lot of workshops around the world teaching, you know, the US government, the governments all around the world how to implement CITES properly. We've written a number of um, sort of fundamental policy documents on how to implement or how parties should implement the convention. Um, however, and, and just do broad conservation work on, you know, for IUC and on reptiles and other species in general. But a lot of my interest in the last few years has become focused on the skin trade. And now, disclaimer, hopefully you got from this talk that I love snakes, right? And there's part of me that thinks it's distasteful that that a beautiful snake like a reticulated python has its skin taken to make a luxury product that I could certainly never afford. Um, and when I first started on along that line of work, I was quite sort of dogmatic and, you know, I think I'm better than these other people because I'm on the moral high ground trying to conserve the beautiful wildlife, etc. However, the more I've got into it, the more I've, I suppose, educated myself and begin begun to understand really how the world is operating and that we do not live in an ideal world and that climate change and monocultures of soy and oh, I could just I could list so many things that are going wrong with our planet that I'm sure all the listeners being educated people are, are more than aware of and ironically the trade in skins is hyper sustainable so we have a huge amount of data now to show that the skin trade is ecologically sustainable so the populations are not being driven to extinction and now once upon a time perhaps the skin industry focused on species that were depleted rapidly but then because it's a commercial entity that needs certain volumes those species were driven to commercial extinction so the trade shifted and is now 100 years later it is focused on those species that can genuinely withstand that level of offtake and they are hyper resilient general ecological generalists like a reticulated python that you can find in any of the world's all of asia's largest cities kuala lumpur they they the fire department take 40,000 reticulated pythons out of bangkok city every year and they just dump them in random national parks. And given what we know, I told you the story of the scrub python, most of them probably die. And yet every year they're taking 40,000 out of a city. And these are, and so most people would think urbanization kills animals because they need the wilderness. And that is true for the vast majority, but it's not true for all. And so many of these species like Asian water monitors blood pythons, reticulated pythons, small homolapsid water snakes. They are thriving in rice paddies and oil palm plantations in big cities. And so this level of offtake is, we believe, although we haven't quantified it to the nth degree, that's fair, and many people want us to, which is probably impossible, as you know, as, as snake biologists getting an exact estimate of population size with confidence intervals that are plus or minus one instead of plus or minus the entire estimated population is quite tricky. And the sustainability credentials of the trade more generally, the fact that they are coming from these habitats, that they 
give local people an ability to utilize natural resources when times of economic and climatic variability, which many of these countries are experiencing at the moment, they have the ability to go out, catch a few snakes, and a snake, particularly a python, can be 30 US dollars for one individual. For an Indonesian, 250 million people, 50% of which live on less than three US dollars a day. And so 30 bucks for a snake that they find in their garden is a huge windfall. And for many people is the only source of cash income. The fact that this is a renewable resource and it isn't coming from a monoculture where biodiversity has been destroyed. It's coming from habitats often where biodiversity is completely intact. It's part of this fabric where people and other species are benefiting from the trade and these 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 large constrictors and other other species that are giving people an incentive to keep that habitat intact to keep on the outside of their rice paddies that river intact because of the income and the ability to diversify that income into some of these wildlife resources so it's taken someone like me who was quite dogmatic and you know no, this is how the world should be to experiencing all of this firsthand and to slowly coming to the realization that that actually this is not the devil we think it is in a world where you know there's a hell of a lot of threatening processes for biodiversity and species this is in fact one of the solutions and i mean a bit like the insects sorry i'll, I'll stop there I could talk about this forever. Well, I, I will say it's refreshing to hear you you say that. There was some of that in the episode we did on the skin trade. And because um, this may, may be upsetting to some of our listeners, but I firmly believe that if we want to have wildlife populations of any type into the future, that we really need to be thinking at higher levels than just the individual animal, whether that be populations or, um, but if we want to manage these populations, um, if, if we, if we are so focused on one individual animal and the fate of that one individual animal, um, then we're, we're going to ultimately, you know, likely fail. And We'll be doing more on that uh, in the future, you know, in particular, you know, we have some states here in the U.S. that have um, official hunting seasons for uh, certain snakes. And um, my big concern with it is, you know, so people have heard me talk about with rattlesnakes in the U.S. I am not for the indiscriminate killing of rattlesnakes. Um, it, it you know, it, it's we don't have, uh, you know, a, a science-based understanding of how many animals could potentially be taken. You know, like you mentioned with the pythons, maybe there are certain species that cannot withstand it because of their life histories, because of their ecology, but there are other species that could withstand it. We need to understand those things before we institute um, these types of programs. So, um, you know, while I generally am against um, you know, killing of rattlesnakes. It's just because there isn't a science-based program behind it. But, you know, I guess in theory, if there was a science-based approach to harvesting snakes um, and that science-based approach would promote the long-term sustainability of those populations, then 
you know, I mean, I guess I would be for that. And along those lines, um, most of our listeners know uh, I am a very avid hunter, hunter of, of uh, game meat. And, and, you know, my family and I eat mostly game meat. And, um, you know, I, I hunt species that are exactly like I talked about. There's science-based management programs that are designed so they will be here for the long term. And in doing that, I end up sitting around a lot of campfires and telling a lot of great hunting stories. And so I want you to imagine that you've just taken that land cruiser through some big river and set up camp on an island in a beautiful vista somewhere out in in Australia. And you're going to tell me one of your best snake stories. I'd love to hear it. Oh God, that's you know that's the the, the tricky question when there's so many. Um, yeah, well, a bit of a funny story. It's 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 not in Australia. It was my wife and I about ten years ago. We did a contract for the Malaysian government looking at the uh, the the sustainability of three large reptiles from Malaysian Borneo. The offtake sustainability. And one of the species was a reticulated python. And we were, I don't remember exactly, but we were called in one day to the local wildlife park, which was a a rehabilitation center. And they had a reticulated python and they wanted us to, I think, handle it while their vets looked at something because they were generally quite scared. It was a, a very large animal. You know, I'm talking... This round, it was probably four and a half meters. And um, and I think we'd, we'd, we'd done our stuff and I'd given the head to Jess and said, I oh, just put it, Jess, who was mine, who is my wife, and said, can you put it back in the bag? And, um, and she did that. And often, as I'm sure you know, if you're holding a head, you quickly and throw it down into the bag and then tighten the 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 top of the bag and unfortunately she wasn't quite quick enough and the snake (laughs) enormous head on it came back and it latched onto her hand and the teeth just went straight through her hand it was a bloody big animal and she was sitting there with this thing and everyone's all the malaysians have jumped on the body and the snake it's not letting go and I, I turned around and i said oh that's amazing jess hold it for one (laughs) second and I'll just get a photograph. <laughs> no, no words were uttered, but she uh, she gave me that stare that says, "If you dare touch that camera, then this relationship is absolutely <laughs> over." Um, needless to say, I, we're we're still married now, so I, I didn't get the camera and got a shot of her after we'd managed to prise its jaws off her hand. But um, yeah, it's it's such a difficult question because. There are so many adventures where, you know, climbing mountains to find snakes after five days of trekking and then suddenly you find a little green jewel that is a green python in a in a habitat where, you know, it wasn't meant to be, where no one expected it to be, and it's a it's a it's a range extension by you know this many tens of kilometers and that some of those feelings are just are just magical. I'm sure many of you have had them in your own fieldwork experiences, but um, yeah, there's just there's too many to tell. And 
and they all deserve deserve telling. So I can't really put my finger on any. I love it. Great story. So if if our listeners want to um, learn a little bit more about you and you know maybe your company or follow you uh, on social media if you're active there, how, how, what's the best way for people to find you and follow you? Um, you can email me. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't really. Uh, I'm not really one of these social media type type people. I don't. I don't need to be known necessarily. But I'm always happy to talk snakes and to to collaboratively work on projects. And my I, my website is www.epicbiodiversity.com. Um, otherwise, I've got a number of publications where you can find my my email and, and drop me a line. Otherwise, I think I'm a, a reasonably private person just getting along with their, their things as they do. Great, Dan. Well, uh, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. It was really a pleasure to, to talk with you. So thank you for, for being here. That was a pleasure. Thanks so much, Chris. And I want to thank our audience and tell everybody to remember Snakes are animals too, and it's a privilege to see one in the wild.